Welcome to Strive Podcast, where we chat with new voices about fresh ideas to create a more just and sustainable world. My name is Marty Logan. Before we get to today's episode, if you enjoy Strive, I encourage you to share it with a friend so they can check out the show. If you're listening in a podcast app, just click on the share icon, the one with the up-facing arrow. Or you can share a post on our Facebook, Twitter, or LinkedIn channels. We're at IPS News. Today we're learning about what I think is a fantastic new tool for holding governments accountable to their human rights obligations. Actually, the Human Rights Measurement Initiative is six years old, so it's not brand new. But it was a revelation to me when I came across it recently. What I like is how the initiative's rights tracker assigns a score to a government's record on a specific right, let's say the right to education, based on how other countries with roughly the same level of resources have performed. As a journalist, I still believe in the naming and shaming approach. But as today's guest, Stephen Bagwell of the initiative and the University of Missouri-St. Louis says, too often governments respond to reports of rights violations by dismissing them as exaggerated or made up. It is much harder to brush off Hermes scores, which are largely data-based. I also like a comparison Stephen uses to explain why human rights should be measured, the Sustainable Development Goals. There are all sorts of updates on progress toward the 2030 SDGs deadline, when in fact governments are not legally obliged to attain the goals. But hundreds of countries have ratified the various human rights instruments, like the Convention on the Rights of the Child or the International Covenant on Civil and Political Rights, yet no one was systematically tracking their progress on meeting those obligations. One note on abbreviations you'll hear in today's episode. ICCPR is the International Covenant on Civil and Political Rights, noted above, and the ICESCR is the International Covenant on Economic, Social and Cultural Rights. Both are bedrock human rights documents. The former is considered law in 173 countries and the ICESCR in 171 countries. Please listen now to my chat with Stephen Bagwell. Stephen Bagwell, welcome to Strive Podcast. Thanks for having me, Marty. I'm really excited to be here. Great. So what I find really interesting about the Human Rights Measurement Initiative is what I'm thinking of as the should-be or could-be element of the index. So, for example... Here in Nepal, where I live, Nepal's HRMI score, <clears throat> excuse me, score for her right to food is 64%, meaning, if I understand correctly, that it has achieved 64% of what is possible. So I, I definitely want to ask you about how you determine that score, that 64%. But first, I'm, I'm really interested, why did you take this approach of trying to quantify human rights, countries' human rights performances? So there were a few reasons. Um, the, the first, I think, is that for coming from an academic standpoint, being sort of a, a human rights scholar, we see oftentimes 
qualitative stories, no matter how rich the detail, how rigorous those qualitative stories are compiled and discussed, that governments or other typically bad faith actors are able to just sort of wave their hands and say, oh, that's an isolated incident, or that's just your sort of impression of what happened. Um, and then that allows them to sort of get away with the behavior uh, because they don't take it seriously. They don't acknowledge that it that it is systematic and that it's representative of something that is going on in a widespread manner. And so um, we, we don't quantify human rights because we don't think the qualitative stories are important. And we're not trying to sort of put a score on the amount of pain and suffering or maldevelopment that uh, societies have. But what we do think is that um, in tandem with some of those narratives, if you're able to back those narratives up with data, um, it makes it much more difficult for governments or other actors to sort of say, no, that's not happening or really argue with what you're trying to say. The second reason, um, and one of the Human Rights Measurement Initiative's co-founders has a really good TED talk on this concept, uh, is that what gets measured get, gets improved. If you look around the world <clears throat> right now, I think a hot button issue, most of the world is inflation. But if you asked many policymakers or many people in sort of the public sphere, whether they're pundits on news shows or, or just people that you're having everyday conversations with, what is GDP growth or what causes inflation? I don't think most people would be able to give you a great answer, but they want to talk about it because they know it's important for some reason. And people just sort of take it for granted. It's just a part of everyday conversation. And we kind of thought, wow, you know, what if we start measuring human rights and we can just make it a default part of the conversation? What if we can get human rights scores to be talked about in the same way that GDP or inflation or democratization or something else like that were, were, were talked about, how much of an impact would that have in how governments were reacting to stories about human rights, how advocate, how effective advocates could be? And, um, you know, just generally sort of a, an idea that what you measure is what you focus on and what you focus on tends to improve over time. So this is, you know, we're not an advocacy organization, but uh, in this sort of sense, I don't think most people get into human rights because they want to see human rights decline over time. Um, so, you know, this is sort of our way of hoping to start some positive trends. That makes a lot of sense. And as a journalist myself, I relate completely to your the first part of your answer, which is this idea of making a qualitative report of some human rights violation, um, which can be you know this horrible incident that as a journalist, you hope grabs the attention of the audience of your report. So I, I understand why um, that's, that, that can be a one-off and governments can often just say, well, it didn't happen that way and, and dismiss it that way. And there often doesn't seem to be an adequate follow-up to that response. So I'm wondering, I know you, this is quite new, but are you getting a sense yet of how governments are responding to this more quantitative attempt to measure how they're dealing with human rights? Sure. So uh, some governments more than others, um, 
but you know, it, there are always sort of entrepreneurs that adopt new things and start focusing on them and then they become more accepted over time. And we're hoping that's the trend that we're going to be seeing here as well. So we've done uh, a project uh, with the Human Rights Commission in New Zealand uh, that was mentioned in sort of several different policy reports, even at sort of the prime minister level. So clearly sort of quantitative indicators there making some of a difference, um, or at least being talked about so that they could potentially make a difference. Mostly where we see sort of uptake and interest is by uh, at least so far activists and some human rights commissions and some intergovernmental organizations and other civil society actors. So um, we're still working on getting more government buy-in. We're always looking to talk to governments or, or really anybody about our data. Um, but we are starting to see more and more people use it. Okay, that, that's interesting because I was also going to ask you about human rights defenders or activists and, and how they have responded to it. But it sounds positive. I guess one negative that I could think of if I'm playing devil's advocate is that governments start could start to see this index as a bureaucratic kind of tool that is is just one of a million ways of measuring the work they're doing because human rights often as you know can be a very urgent uh, matter right where we need to deal with things very quickly it's it can be not always but they can be life and death incidents but if you have some so-called pencil pusher who's just shunting off the human rights work till next week when he or she feels like doing it, then it loses that um, urgency. Sure. I, I mean, I could, I could certainly see that. And I think that is one of the reasons I think we're always very careful to say that, you know, this sort of hybrid or complementary approach is really important. Um, the way we generate scores, we, we generate them by country by year. And so, you know, there could be massive improvements between, I'll say, January and October in a, in a country in a year. And we're not going to catch that until the next year. Um, you know, the country's score stays the same for the entirety of that calendar year until we are able to release, collect and release more data. So, you know, I think it's, it's important to acknowledge that even if we do a, a pretty good job of, of measuring what we're trying to measure, there are still limitations to that approach that are going to require other approaches sort of in complement with that. Okay, right. That makes sense. So getting back to what I mentioned in the beginning, can you explain exactly how you come up with the numbers? I don't think it's that complicated, but it would be great to hear it from you. Sure. So we have uh, two different ways of generating human rights scores. Okay. So for economic and social rights, um, we use data that governments and intergovernmental organizations report. So uh, I think in your initial email, you mentioned the right to food in Nepal uh, and the data sources for that are come from UNICEF, uh, the World Health Organization, and the World Bank, um, and the Food and Agriculture Organization, FAO Stat. So, you know, these initial indicator scores are not data that we're going out and generating. We're collecting those from existing sources. And most of the time, governments have some ability to say, this is 
how well we're doing on providing food for people, or this is how many children are stunted per a uh, hundred or per a thousand, um, you know, different, different indicators like that. Oftentimes it's government reporting agencies that do this. They report the data to the world bank or to FAO stat FAO stat looks at it, sort of makes sure it looks more or less correct. There might be some corrections, data harmonization, things like that. And then they will publish their sort of final indicator for the year. And that's when we collect it. And uh, because economic and social rights, the, the international law basis there is the International Covenant on Economic and Social Rights, which sort of builds in an acknowledgement that countries can only do so much with the resources that they have. And they're probably not going to see universal fulfillment of economic and social rights all at the same time, right? This is not an immediate thing that happens, and this is not um, something that's supposed to happen sort of equally for all countries at all levels of development. Uh, and so what we do is we sort of take that international law and we, we kind of break it down a little bit, and we take the raw indicators that the intergovernmental organizations are reporting, and we then benchmark that by uh, GDP as sort of a, our GDP per capita as sort of a, a proxy for the level of resources that a country has. And so for every country that we have data for, uh, you'll see the raw indicator score. Maybe, you know, Nepal does really well on the raw indicator score. I would have to dig in and look, um, but maybe they do really well on the raw indicator score for food but then they're not doing as well as they could be or should be based on their level of income. And I know that was a, a follow-up question that you had as well, is what's the could be or should be and how do we determine that? Uh, I think this is probably a good time to explain that a little bit as well. Sure, yeah, please, uh, go ahead. So, so what we do is we have these, you know, a decade's worth of observations or more and we look at what country has scored the best at that level of income um, and whichever country that has scored the best in that 10 year range, uh, that score uh, at that level of income gets a 100%. So it's kind of a sliding scale. Uh, and uh, I'm used to explaining this with graphics. So I'm kind of visualizing that in my mind uh, as we're talking here. Um, but it's sort of a sliding scale, like you've got a curve going up, you've got all these observations plotted, and the ones that are right on that curve all the way around are going, going to score 100%, meaning that they are doing the best they can with the resources that they have. And to see any further improvement, they really need either increased economic growth, they need uh, foreign aid, or some other source of resources that would allow them to improve. Um, so that's sort of where the 100% comes from and sort of the score saying you're doing 64%. Uh, that's just the difference between the best scoring country at that income level and what we observe as Nepal's score uh, at their level of income for that year. That's a great explanation. And I'm thinking, again, I find this really, really intriguing. And this approach for me, who's been you know, involved in and reporting on human rights for a long time. I just really, I like it, and I and I really hope that it does become something that is 
a tool that governments are using um, and, and watching at the same time. Okay, that was a great explanation of the ESC rights. Now, please talk about political and civil rights. Sure. So um, just to sort of tie the two together, right? I, I mentioned that most of our ESR data at least starts with data that's reported by governments or by intergovernmental organizations. Um, for civil and political rights, we can't really rely on those sources. To my knowledge, uh, I have never seen a government come out and say, hey, we tortured this many thousands of people per year, or we uh, violated the assembly and association rights of this many hundreds of thousands of people this year, right? Governments tend to not be very forthcoming with um, civil and political rights violations. And so we looked around, uh, and I should mention that one core aspect of everything that the Human Rights Measurement Initiative does is we have a principle of co-design. So we engage the communities that we are going to be uh, using to collect our data and that we hope will use our data. And we have a conversation about what what could we do to help you? What are you willing to do to help us? What kind of final product would you find useful? Um, and so there was a co-design workshop with several human rights advocates uh, and they helped us come up with, this is how we should measure our civil and political rights. And the way we did that was we realized that there are probably very few people who are more qualified uh, to talk about civil and political rights in a country than human rights experts that are in that country, uh, whether they are journalists who have reported on human rights issues or human rights defenders or people who work for like Amnesty International. Um, you know, these are the people whose job it is to really know a lot about what is going on in their country uh, from a human rights perspective. And so we decided we would create this expert survey. Uh, what the expert survey does is allow us to create scores for civil and political rights that we are also able to uh, be honest about our level of uncertainty. So where human rights experts might disagree, uh, you might see a little bit more uncertainty with that score and, and really get into some of these details about civil and political rights. Okay. Let me jump back to the ESC rights. I was thinking when you were describing that approach that you're taking with the civil political rights, for example, again, here in Nepal, just because I'm here and it's the country I, I know best, um, during COVID, I, I was thinking a lot about the right to health. Nepal has very strong guarantees of right to health, including in its constitution. However, on the ground, there wasn't a lot of evidence that the right to health was being provided, respected, etc. And, and there are lots of reasons for that. And obviously, Nepal wasn't the only country having a problem doing that, providing health care for everyone. But, you know, using the approach that you're using for ESC rights, would that be captured? Or would it also be useful to, again, be using some sort of confidential survey that would give you feedback about the actual situation on the ground? in that kind of situation? Um, I, would, I would love it if we also had uh, a survey for ESC rights. Um, 
one thing we do have is we have some qualitative data for economic and social rights from our survey. Uh, and so when you're talking about sort of the people at risk, uh, as part of our survey uh, that is mostly focused on civil and political rights, we will ask people, are there certain groups that are at risk of having their economic and social rights violated? Uh, if so, which groups and which rights? And can you tell us more about that? Uh, in open, open-ended qualitative responses. In terms of whether or not we would be able to include uh, sort of actual measures like we do for the civil and political rights from an economic and social rights survey, that's something, I, like I said, I would love to see, but our, our existing survey is already something that takes an hour to an hour and a half to do for many people. Um, and it's quite expensive to, to run in a variety of countries. That's why we have more data for economic and social rights than we do for civil and political rights. So um, that's something that would take a, that would take quite a lot, but it is something that I'm interested in exploring and maybe as Hermi continues to grow, uh, that might be a direction that we take. And just to uh, reinforce what you were saying, I, I have a friend who is sent your survey and they have told me that it is very comprehensive and takes a long time to complete. It, it does. Uh, every year we try to shave it down uh, by a few questions. But every year we also have people saying, why aren't you asking questions about this? Why don't you put this in your survey? Um, and so it seems like some, there are some years that for every question we take out, we're adding two more. Other years, it's the opposite, right? We're actually able to shave out five questions or 10 questions or something else like that and save our, our respondents who are very focused on, you know, advocating for human rights and, and being the human rights experts that they are um, so that they don't have to take quite as much time filling out our survey. Right, right. Okay. So I want to ask you how you measure impact. But before getting there, just quickly, I noticed scanning that I was looking um, at a number of countries. And for example, Canada, I saw that there was data lacking for the civil rights measure safety from the state and also the one for empowerment. And that really surprised me because you know, when you usually look through global measurements, there are always some countries where the data is not complete. And more often than not, those are so-called developing countries and the, the rich Western countries like Canada are usually complete. Uh, in this case, Canada was not, and, and I was initially quite surprised. Can you explain why that is? Sure. Um, so we, we run our survey right now, I think in a about 40 countries. We try to add one or two countries every year, but like I said, this is something that's very expensive and very time consuming. So we're only able to sort of grow as our own capacity allows us to grow. But the initial pilot, I believe had seven countries in it uh, six years ago. So we've grown by about 30 countries over six years, uh, give or take. And um, we've made a, a pretty conscious decision to not just focus on rich countries, not just focus on, you know, lesser developed countries or still developing countries, however you would like to sort of frame that. Um, you know, we don't want to be biased in how we're looking at things. We want to be inclusive. And so we, we try to be fairly strategic with 
where we're expanding. We do have a, a slight, um, I guess, oversampling from Pacific countries uh, because that's where, you know, Hermia is based in New Zealand and uh, that's where we're based. We were able to get funding that would allow us to collect data on a number of countries that most organizations would not have bothered collecting data for, uh, some of the Pacific Island countries. And we were really happy to follow through with that because those countries don't get the attention they deserve. Um, and in other times, you know, Canada or the United States or Russia or some other countries probably get more attention than they deserve. Um, and so we, we try to be strategic, but we're also independent and grant funded. And so if we have, you know, a regional grant organization that is really interested in what the human rights situation is in the Pacific islands, and they give us money to expand our survey in that direction, we're, we tend to be pretty open about doing that. They don't get to tell us what the data is going to look like, but if they want us to add a country uh, and they're willing to fund that country, uh, that country's data expansion, we're happy to expand to that country. Right. Okay. Thank you. Another question jumped into my head uh, when you were speaking. You mentioned that you're not, you don't consider yourselves human rights advocates. And I think you meant in the way that Amnesty or Human Rights Watch would be human rights advocates. But most uh, human rights reporting, I think, approaches that work with the end result of calling out governments for violations. What is your approach? What are, you, what are you trying to do in relation to governments? And I think it's not calling out and shining a harsh spotlight on governments, but you can explain that better than me. Sure. So I think uh, I, I like some of the terms that you use there. Uh, I know Amnesty and Human Rights Watch and others for a long time used tools that would be described as sort of naming and shaming uh, and I think they've moved towards calling it spotlighting. Um, for us, really, what we're trying to do is really get human rights in the conversation at the same level as GDP. Um, going back, going back to that, what what we're really trying to do is provide governments and advocates an ability to track progress on meeting their inner their obligations under international law. Um, this is something that I think, you know, distinguishes what we're doing from, say, the Sustainable Development Goals and from what Amnesty International is doing, right? The Sustainable Development Goals progress towards these sort of endpoints of development, but they're not legally binding. And many of them overlap quite extensively with obligations that governments have that are legally binding, uh, right? Like, I think a hundred... 80-something countries have signed uh, the, and ratified the International Covenant on Economic and Social Rights. Uh, I might be a little off on that number, but it's in that ballpark. Um, and nobody is talking about how well they're doing, right? Uh, are they meeting their obligations? Are they doing everything that they can with what they have? And so I think it's, it's really important that we track that. Um, both from the government side, governments should care if they're meeting their legal obligations and advocates should too. Um, obviously, advocates do. So I, I think what we're doing is really trying to provide um, a starting point and 
an idea that you can't improve things until you know where you are. Like, how do you know if you've improved if you didn't start by saying, I'm definitely at this point right now, I'd like to get to that point later. Uh, and so that's that's really what we're trying to do is, is measure progress. We would love it if um, the positive improvements uh, got highlighted just as much as the negative, you know, the downturns did. That's not typically the way the news cycle works, but if Nepal, the next time we release data has gone from a score of, you know, 64% on the right to food to 80% on the right to food, I think that is something that should absolutely be explored and absolutely be applauded as clearly Nepal did something to, you know, drastically improve their score uh, based on their available resources. And we can do that while still acknowledging countries can do better, right? Like you're still only scoring 80%. Kudos for improving your score this much. You still have some room to improve. Um, so that's that's really kind of what I see and, and what I would like to see. It's not so much spotlighting or naming and shaming, but um, encouraging and accountability, I think are two values that I would say uh, come from, from our perspective. Okay, thank you. And so you mentioned earlier that when the initiative started, there were seven countries. Now I think you said there are 30. So by that measure, you, you are a success. You're growing and growing quite quickly. I mean, how do you measure your success? And I'm, I think it's probably not only growth. And, and you know, given that, how, how are you doing? I mean, how do you rate yourselves at this point? So that, that's a question that we talk about at Hermie quite a bit is what does success look like for, for us and what are the different sort of dimensions of success? Obviously, we would love to be able to grow to the point that we were providing annual data for every country in the world on every human rights obligation that they have, whether that's from the ICCPR or the ICESCR or other legal instruments uh, that we're not measuring yet. Um, I think other sort of ways we measure success is, you know, how many governments are starting to talk about our scores? Are we showing up in sort of um, UPR reports? Are we being mentioned in news articles? Are we, you know, being talked about in press releases or on social media? Uh, we, we try to keep our eyes on all of those things because we do want to make sure that what we're doing is useful. And um, we also recognize that there are a variety of ways our, our data could be used and could make an impact. And we try to be open, open-minded about how that is. Thank you very much, Stephen. I find the initiative r- really interesting tool and such a different approach to human rights that it, it really surprised me when I came across it. I'm sorry it took so long for me to realize it was there, but I'm certainly going to follow it very closely to see what kind of impact it has. Because I I think, as you said, it could be a tool that governments are more likely to engage with rather than, you know, the, the current approach. But anyway, I think it's always great to have another option for trying to improve um, the human rights situation. And thanks very much for explaining it. It can be a bit complex when you get into the weeds, but I think you did a a great job of making it clear. Thank you for saying that, Marty. It's always dangerous to give an academic an open mic and freedom to speak. Um, 
we, we tend to go on. So I, I hope it was informative and useful. I really enjoyed it. I'm happy to talk about the project or any questions you or your listeners might have if they want to reach out. Uh, feel free to, to give them my information or, or the website, whatever is useful for them. Okay, I will definitely do that. Thanks again, Steve. Yeah, really enjoyed it. Thanks again to Stephen Bagwell for chatting with me today. If you liked what you heard, don't forget to follow, favorite, or like the show wherever you're listening to this. You can also let us know what you thought of the episode by posting a comment on Twitter, Facebook, or LinkedIn. We're at IPS News. My name is Marty Logan. I'll talk to you again soon. Strive is a production of IPS News.